Holy cow! I feel ready to go another nine innings. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, with spring upon us and with spring training finally starting in the south, I figured it would be a good time to revisit baseball. Actually, this may be one of the last times I talk about baseball, and it's because I've really lost a lot of interest in baseball, which is kind of sad, and that's why I wanted to talk about it today. I did talk about baseball back in Season 1. I talked about my beloved Yankees, the team that I grew up loving, the team that I rooted for back when they were really horrible, back when baseball meant something to me. And I talked about the time that I got to go to a playoff game and a World Series game. Those were exciting times for a little kid, and I was excited, and I loved it. And I was really into baseball. So I wanted to revisit it at least one more time on the podcast, because it did have such a big role in my life when I was a kid. When I talked about baseball back in Season 1, I talked about how my love for baseball really started fading back in 1994, after the last major baseball strike. That's when they canceled the season, canceled the World Series. They stopped playing in August of 94, didn't play the playoffs, didn't play the World Series, just canceled the whole thing. And I remember being so disgusted by the whole thing, because it was just millionaires fighting billionaires about money that the fans could only dream of. They're arguing about and ruining a game that we all loved, and it really ticked me off back then. And my love for baseball never recovered from that. I followed it in subsequent years, and I followed it for a few years after that. I mean, it's really hard to give something up that's been a part of your life for all of your life, even if you're just a fan of it. But my love for it really just never recovered from that. And I talked about that in a little detail back in Season 1. But what I wanted to talk about today was how much a part of my life watching baseball and listening to baseball was when I was younger. Now I know, I hear you. Oh, it's another old guy talking about the virtues of baseball. Yeah, it kind of is. I'll admit that. But at one point in the history of this country, back in the olden days, baseball was a huge part of the fabric of at least American life. I know it was big and became big in other countries, but it was such an everyday presence in our lives back when I was a kid. Now, you have to remember, these are the days before cable, before the internet. The only way you could catch a game was either going to the game at the stadium itself, if you were lucky enough to live in a city with a baseball team. You could catch the games on local TV, because that's when local TV, you know, the local affiliates in the New York area, WPIX, WOR, they would carry the local games for the Yankees and the Mets, respectively. Each city had its own local station covering the games for their teams. So you could catch the games on the local station if they were being broadcast. And the surefire way to catch a game was on the radio. And again, this is back when AM radio was king. There was FM radio. But the AM stations were huge, and that's where you would find your baseball games. So that's how you would follow baseball. And as a kid, I remember following baseball on the radio. I, of course, listened to the Yankees. But I've also told you about when I was hiding under the covers, listening to Gene Shepard. The other thing that I would listen to during baseball season, if Gene Shepard wasn't on or if he was over, is baseball games. Because night games were a thing, and the local radio stations for the local teams always broadcast the games on radio. And one of the cool things about AM radio is that at night, when the businesses are shut down, when the factories are shut down, when there's less interference with the airwaves, me in my bedroom in New Jersey, I could pick up the radio signal from stations all across the country. Well, maybe not all across the country, but as far west as Chicago. 
And I remember catching ball games on WBZ out of Boston, even though it was the horrible Red Sox. I could always root for the team that was playing the Red Sox. I could catch the games on WLW, which was out of Cincinnati. And I thought it was cool listening to a Cincinnati radio station in my bedroom in New Jersey. Now, of course, the Cincinnati radio station was playing Reds games, and I didn't really know the Reds, and I didn't really know the National League. But it was baseball, and I could listen to it in my bed while I was supposed to be going to sleep. And I remember listening to 1000 AM out of Chicago. As I was preparing the episode today, I was trying to remember the call letters for the station. I just remember 1000 AM Chicago, but I couldn't remember the call letters for the station. I actually looked it up and they didn't even sound familiar. Nowadays, 1000 AM in Chicago is MVP, WMVP, which of course is an ESPN affiliate because ESPN owns everything. But back in the day, it was either WCFL or WLUP, but I don't remember either set of those call letters. I just remember 1,000 out of Chicago. But that was what I would do as a kid. When the night games would come on and I was supposed to be sleeping, I'd have my little transistor radio under the covers. Yes, literally like a scene from a movie. Little kid under the blanket, twisting the radio dial, trying to find the ball game. That was me. But that's how I learned the players. That's how I learned the game. And hearing the passion of those local announcers as they announce the games and their strikeout calls and their home run calls, it really instilled in me a feeling of excitement about baseball. Just the guys who were into the game loved it so much when they were broadcasting the game, when they would be doing the post-game interviews. You could hear how much everybody enjoyed the game, and it made me enjoy the game. So yeah, I'd be listening to baseball games out of New York, of course. But I'd be listening to Boston games and Cincinnati games and Chicago games. Any game I could listen to, I would have on the radio. Now, when I was a kid, just like now, but when I was a kid, baseball would start in April. And you'd have four or five games a week, minimum. On a lucky week, I would have baseball Monday through Friday night. And I would listen every night, or at least every night that I could get away with it. Because I loved listening to it. And the announcers were so good because they could describe the action and you could picture it in your head. That was the beauty of the radio broadcast. You didn't have to be there. The announcers were so good, you got a feeling of what it was like at the ballpark, where the players were playing, how the pitcher was looking at the batter, what the runners were doing, where the fielders were positioned. When you can picture the setting of a baseball park and you have a skilled announcer describing the scene so well, it was almost like you were there. Yeah, of course, I watched games on TV when I could. But don't forget, my dad was not a baseball fan, so I would never watch a game with my dad because he wouldn't watch a game. I think my dad would watch a documentary on mixing paint before he'd watch a baseball game voluntarily, at least on TV. I told you he did take me to games live. He would suffer through that for me because he was a good dad. But when there were other options on TV, he'd take anything but baseball. And when I was a kid, for the longest time we only had the one TV, so the only time I could catch a game would be on a Saturday afternoon when dad was out. I could catch the game of the week. And back in those days, the game of the week was one game. The network would pick one game to televise. That's what we watched. If it was Atlanta versus Philadelphia, that was the game of the week. And back when I was a kid, the Yankees were so bad, they were never featured on a game of the week. So I'd be watching a lot of Atlanta versus Philadelphia, St. Louis versus Chicago, Cincinnati versus L.A. I learned the National League really well because they loved the National League teams. And when L.A. was good, they especially liked to put L.A. on. But yeah, I would watch them whenever I could. I'd listen to them whenever I could. I just loved the game. And like I said, four or five nights a week, I'd be listening. Baseball was like a lifeblood to me as far as entertainment was concerned. I loved listening to it. And of course, I loved playing it too. I mean, playing it in the backyard. As I explained back in season one, I was the fat kid. I never played sports as a kid. I mean, I played in the neighborhood, but I wasn't a jock. I didn't become sports-oriented and didn't play many sports until I got to college. 
in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. The jocks were already set. The coaches knew who was good. They didn't have anything like walk-on tryouts, at least that I knew about. And I was too much of a shy, introverted, nervous, Nelly-type kid. I was never going to walk on anyway. I dreamed about it. I dreamed about playing baseball. I would have loved to have played baseball in middle school or in high school. But I never did, except in my backyard. I played a lot of fantasy games in my backyard. Between the backyard and the top of the driveway, where we had that level spot and I could throw tennis balls against the house and then practice my catching, that was the extent of my baseball. I used tennis balls against the house because the baseballs, A, didn't bounce, and B, knocked the shingles off the house, which Dad kind of frowned on. So I would use tennis balls against the house. And the reason I did is because at the top of the driveway, the driveway was at the level of the garage. And then there was the main floor of the ranch house we lived in right above the garage. So it was essentially two stories high there. Even though we lived in a ranch house, that end of the house was basically 20 feet high. So there was a lot of wall there where I could throw the tennis ball. Yeah, I had to be careful because there was windows on the end of the house too. So I had to be really accurate or really lucky. But that's how I got accurate too. I would learn to throw the tennis ball where it wouldn't hit the windows, where it would bounce off the house, and I could go running after it to try to catch it. And I learned to throw it high and throw it low and throw it fast and lob it up there and fire it up there. And I'm sure it drove my mom crazy to hear the ball bouncing against the side of the house, but she never said anything and she never stopped me. But I would go out there and practice my catches, fielding fly balls, fielding pop-ups, and in my head, I'd be playing these imaginary games. I'd create a scenario in my head, long fly ball to gamer dude in right field. He's going back, back, back. He makes the catch. Oh yeah, I did that all of the time. And then in the backyard, I had one of those pitch packs, you know, that giant nylon net that was part elastic. In case you don't know, it's a metal frame, about three feet wide, four or five feet long, has legs on it, and this elastic netting in the frame. And you could lace a little red ribbon through the center of it to form a strike zone. And what you would do is you would take a baseball and you'd throw it at the elastic and it would bounce back. And depending on how you angled the pitch back, it could fire the ball back as a line drive. Or if you angled it somewhat, you'd throw the ball and it would give you a pop up. Or you could throw the ball and it would bounce a grounder to you. And I wore the heck out of that pitch back. I was out in the backyard again in my fantasy world, creating fantasy scenarios. If I was playing pitcher that day, I'd create a count where I was throwing pitches to the little strike zone on the pitch back. I'd always strike the batter out on a three and two count with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth. Or I'd be pretending to be at shortstop and throw the ball so I'd get a grounder and have to make a diving stop and throw it to first. And of course, there was a tree over to the side. That was my first baseman. And that's where I'd throw the ball. And I'd always get the runner just by a step. Yeah, I didn't play any actual baseball. But boy, I had a lot of fantasy games in my head because I loved the game so much. I just wanted to be out there playing it. When I got older and actually found places where you could go to batting cages, and this is when I was, you know, late teens, early 20s, when I could drive places, I would go into the batting cages where they had the miles per hour set up. They'd have a 60 mile an hour cage, a 70 mile an hour cage, an 80 mile an hour cage. So I wanted to try those out because as a kid, I never had anybody actually throwing pitches at me, not overhand pitches, not with a baseball. We played softball in the neighborhood, but that's because we had a lot of little kids around too. Softball is much easier than baseball. But I'd go to these batting cages and I wanted to see, you know, could I hit fastball pitching? Now, I didn't have years of practice, so I don't know how it would have been if I did, but I could get into the 60 mile an hour cage and I could get around on the ball. I may have had one or two good hits in the 60 mile an hour cage, but when I got to the 70 mile an hour cage... It made me a little thankful that I never got the chance to play because those 70 mile an hour balls come in really fast. 
I didn't even bother going to the 80 mile an hour cage. I couldn't get around to the 70 mile an hour cage. When you go to the batting cage, you put your dollar in, they throw you 10 pitches. I spent $2 on 70 mile an hour pitches, which was 20 pitches. I may have gotten a foul tip on one of them, but the fact that I couldn't even make contact on the 70 mile an hour pitch back when I was in my 20s suggests to me that perhaps I wasn't cut out for baseball. But that didn't change my love for it when I was a kid. It just brought the realization home when I was in my 20s that "Hmm, maybe you didn't miss out on that much. But when I was a kid, it wasn't just about the playing of the game. I mean, I really wanted to play the game and I really enjoyed playing softball, which was as close as we could get in my neighborhood. But the other thing I loved about baseball was the record book, the statistics. There was something about recording everything and keeping records, something about the long history of the game that I found really appealing and comforting. As a kid, I didn't really appreciate the longevity aspect of it. I mean, I knew the records had been there for forever. For a little kid, something from the 1930s was forever ago. But as an adult, I can look back and recognize that it was an appreciation for the longevity and the consistency of the sport. And when I was a kid, there were records that had been around for literally decades that had never been broken and that no one thought would ever be broken. And I knew all the records. I knew the important ones. And that's another thing about baseball. There are important records, or at least there were, and that's something I'm going to talk about in a couple minutes. There were important records that were just touchstones of the sport. You knew these were the holy grail of baseball. DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, still the record. When I was growing up, Lou Gehrig's 2130-game consecutive streak, that was the record. And that had been the record for decades. It didn't hurt that Lou Gehrig was my favorite Yankee. But I knew 2,130 games without missing a game was the record that, at the time, nobody thought would ever be broken. Babe Ruth, 714 home runs. Another record that they thought would never be broken. And when I was a kid, these records had been around for decades by then. And as I was watching baseball when I was a kid, I remember when Pete Rose was approaching DiMaggio's record. Rose got to 44 games. DiMaggio still had 56 games, 56 game hitting streak, 56 games in a row. The guy got a hit, a record that stands to this day. I remember when Hank Aaron was approaching Ruth's record, career home runs, 714, I thought would never be broken. Aaron broke it, finally retired with 755. But I remember that chase and that was monumental because nobody thought that anybody would ever approach, much less break Babe Ruth's record. Same with the streak set by Lou Gehrig. Nobody thought that anybody would ever approach 2,130 consecutive games until Cal Ripken came along. Now, I had to look this up because once Gehrig's streak was broken, I didn't care. But Ripken played in 2,632 games before he voluntarily decided to stop. I didn't care so much about Babe Ruth's record. I figured the home run record would one day fall. But I was really bummed that Ripken broke Gehrig's record, probably because Gehrig was my favorite Yankee. And by the way, as a side note, if you've never seen the movie Pride of the Yankees, that's one of several things that I watched that made Garrick my favorite Yankee. So if you want to check out a good baseball movie, there's one to go check out. But I was really bummed that Ripken beat Garrick's record. But all of that goes to my point. These records were touchstones of baseball. They were like the hot button things you always talked about in baseball. Who's got the home run record? Who's got the hitting streak record? Who's got the consecutive game streak? And those are numbers that I knew. Like the back of my hand I knew. And you know what? The perspective on those records has changed over the years. I know Aaron doesn't have the official record, thanks to steroids and bonds, but that's the problem with some of the records these days. They've been clouded. There's an asterisk next to them. How do you feel about performance-enhancing drugs? Whoever thought of performance-enhancing drugs when I was a kid? Nobody. 
Now, did they use stuff? I'm sure they did. Amphetamines, uppers, who knows what they used. Did they also smoke and drink? Yeah, they did. That's probably why they needed the amphetamines. But my point is, these records that were the holy grail of baseball when I was a kid, not only do they not seem to have the same meaning, but it doesn't seem that people care about them as much. I couldn't tell you now how many home runs Bonds has hit, and I don't care. I know he has more than Hank Aaron, officially, because baseball is recognizing all of his home runs, and that's fine. I can tell you Ripken has the consecutive game streak. I don't care. And it doesn't seem that baseball does either. More importantly, it doesn't seem like the players do either. And I think that's one of the problems that I have with baseball these days. It doesn't seem like the players care about the things that are important to baseball. Things like durability records and longevity records. They care about how big their paycheck is, how long's their contract, how long till they become a free agent. That's the stuff they care about. At least that's the impression we get. And don't get me wrong, I'm not siding with the owners. The owners are even worse. The owners don't care about the game. The owners care about their pocketbooks. They care about crushing the players' union to the extent possible, which in baseball is next to impossible, and they care about maximizing their profits. That's why they locked the players out last fall. I don't know if you know that there was a lockout. From last fall to this spring, there was a lockout. Back when the first lockouts and strikes happened in the 80s and the 90s, huge news, national news. These days, it's barely a blip on the radar because baseball just doesn't have a place in our society the way it used to. Nobody cares like they used to. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of baseball fans. But the passion, the identifying with your team, the identifying with your players, it's just not there anymore. And yeah, getting back to the owners, this latest deal that they have, this latest strike-ending or lockout-ending deal that they have, they just keep changing the game. They keep taking away from the essence of the game. And that's part of the thing that has lost me too. Now, if you're not a baseball fan or if you weren't a baseball fan, you might not appreciate this. And is this going to sound like an old guy ranting about how things have changed? Yes, absolutely. But to me, it's like changing the rules of Monopoly. Monopoly has a set of rules. You're supposed to play by the rules. Every time you pass go, you're supposed to get $200. When you go to jail, you have three rolls to get out. Otherwise, you got to pay. Those are the rules. You don't get to come in and modify the rules and say, yeah, every other time you pass go, you're not going to collect $200. And we're not going to make you go to jail, even if you land on the square. Well, that changes the fundamental play of the game, doesn't it? It changes the dynamic of the game. And in my opinion, what the owners have done to the game over the decades has basically changed the essence of the game. It's still baseball-ish. It's just not the baseball that I grew up with. I mean, one of the most basic things was the season was 162 games long. I know it used to be 154, but in my lifetime, it's always been 162. When I was a kid, there was two leagues and two divisions in each league. And the winner of each division would face each other in the playoffs. And then the winners of the playoffs would face the other league in the World Series. But somewhere along the line, the owners decided to add playoff games. They take the first two teams from the division. And that by itself watered down the importance of the regular season. You didn't have to win your division. You just had to place in the top two. And then you had a chance to get to the World Series. Well, that's kind of stupid. You've played 162 games. You should think that winning your division would mean something. What's the point if it doesn't? Once they started putting in these division series, I knew I wasn't going to care about baseball anymore. Not the way I used to. Baseball was the one sport where the regular season meant something. You had to win your division. Nowadays, it's gotten worse. Now there's three divisions in each league. There's wildcard teams. And I don't even care. I mean, what does it matter? What's the point of playing 162 games if it doesn't matter? If the first two or the first three teams make the playoffs, it kind of takes the point out of the whole long regular season. 
Why not make the regular season 80 games and then have a series of round-robin tournaments? The 80-game season will set the seating for a tournament playoff bracket, and then the teams go through a whole round-robin, and the winners of the two bracket regions, they face off in the World Series. Why do I need 162 games to eliminate four or five teams? 162 games used to eliminate eight teams. That was the point of 162 games. Yeah, I know. I'm a bit of a purist as far as the playoffs are concerned. But I'm a bit of a purist with the NFL and the NBA, too. I mean, I hate a regular season that eliminates, like, two teams. What's the point? Why don't you make the whole season the playoffs? I mean, why am I playing so many games if I'm then going into the postseason anyway? I may as well take it easy through the regular season. Play my good stuff during the playoffs, which is basically what the NBA does. They play an 82-game season and eliminate, like, four teams. I know, I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating for effect. But that's the problem with having so many playoff teams. It makes the regular season meaningless. And that's what the owners are doing with baseball. The long 162-game season has far less meaning when you're eliminating maybe half the teams. Another thing the owners have screwed up is the length of the games. There's been a lot of head-scratching and hand-wringing about how long the games are and how can we shorten the games. One of the things they're doing with this new collective bargaining agreement is they're putting a pitch clock on. I mean, I see the value to that, I guess. Because guys do tend to take a long time to throw a pitch. I mean, I mentioned this in season one. Baseball games used to clock in between two and a half and three hours. Now, if you get a baseball game in between three and four hours, you're doing great. But I also pointed out, and I'm saying it again, the way to shorten the games is to take out some of the advertising. They'll never do that because they want the advertising dollars. But when I was a kid, the break between innings was maybe two minutes long. Maybe. That's more than double now. And that's so they can get enough commercials in to pay the bills. They've doubled the lengths of commercial breaks, and then they wonder why the games are so long. Well, when the time between innings goes from two minutes to four minutes, hmm, let me think. There's a break between every half inning, and I'm adding two minutes of commercials, and there's a minimum of 16 breaks. That's, wait, let me do the math, 32 minutes. Just by increasing the advertising, baseball has extended the length of games by 30 minutes, and they wonder why the games are so long. I wish I could figure that puzzler out. The other thing the owners wring their hands over is the price of baseball. But you know what? Nobody's making you give a guy a 10-year guaranteed contract worth $300 million, or whatever the latest number is. I mean, I know that's what the market will bear, but the market will bear that because that's what you guys have agreed to pay players. Even when I loved baseball, I didn't love baseball enough to want to see that kind of money being thrown around. Nobody's worth $30 million a year. Nobody's worth $3 million a year. But they've created this market, they've created this beast, and now they have to keep feeding the beast. They let the genie out of the bottle. Once that genie's out, you're not getting any sympathy from me when you try to get the genie back in. Oh, there's so much more I could rant about with baseball. I mean, even the designated hitter. I mean, come on. When I was a kid, everybody had to play. You didn't have designated hitters. The pitcher had to hit. On days the pitcher wasn't pitching, he'd play in the outfield. But everybody had to hit. The pitcher was as good an athlete as anybody else on the field. That was in high school. That was in college. That was in the minor leagues. There was no designated hitter. The designated hitter was an invention back in the 70s. So the guys who couldn't field anymore, but who still wanted to play, would have a place on the roster. That's really all the designated hitter is for. Yeah, pitchers didn't hit as well as other players. But that's because they were focusing on pitching. But that's the price of the game. When you get to the major league level, that's what happened. Now the designated hitter is universal. Is it necessary? No. It's just another example of how the owners and the players decided to mess with a good thing. And as an old traditionalist, I have to say, I can do without the designated hitter. 
I guess I get agitated about baseball because I used to love it so much. And the people who are the caretakers of the game, both the players and the owners, they've just changed it for the worse. Sometimes change is good, but changing something like baseball, the way they've changed it, has been anything but good. At least as far as the spirit of the original game is concerned. But that's just my opinion. I'm just an old dude ranting about a game that I used to love. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for tolerating my rants. I really do appreciate it. You guys are the best and I can't thank you enough. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.